Take your Bible and open to Luke chapter 2. Our passage today comes from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 21. With God's help, would you turn your hearts to hear his word as I read from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 21. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. I am thankful to be bringing you a message from this text in August, when it is a hundred plus degrees outside and and not in December. I'm thankful, and and I say this in all seriousness, um, that there are no poinsettias around. No one is in their, their Christmas plaid this morning. I'm thankful for that because I have, I have noticed a trend that when it comes to, to certain passages, even the most serious, uh, spiritually minded kind of people, the more well acquainted we are with certain biblical storylines, the more apt we are to, to let them just kind of wash over us and the words are just kind of automatically coming out of our own mouths as they are read. They, they kind of lead to this 
spiritual sleepiness. They're almost like a tranquilizer. And I'm not sure that you could pick any other passage in all of the scripture where that's more so the case than Luke chapter 2. And so I'm thankful that we're here today and we're looking at it in, in this context. I guarantee you that if this, if this was a, a, a December Lord's Day and by some miracle it was cold outside, um, when, when we read this, you know, Many of us would be, we be, would be, you know, starry eyed and we'd be looking down the row and maybe snuggling up close to mom and dad and, you know, just reciting the story that, that we already know so well. Familiarity eliminates surprise. That's my contention. And that's a shame because that, this is a surprising story. It's full of surprises and upsets and paradoxes and contrasts, and perhaps with God's help, looking at it outside of its normal trappings will give us the chance to see it with with fresh eyes and see it for what it really holds. The Nicene Creed says, very God of very God, begotten, not made, the one who for us men and for our salvation came down and was incarnate and was made man. Well, the surprises begin in verse 1, where Caesar Augustus issues this edict. It says that a decree, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should get, be registered. And Caesar's power in the first several verses here is, is just simply, it's self-evident. You don't, you don't even have to elaborate on it. Caesar snaps his fingers and things get done. This is a man who came into power in 27 BC. His rule led to what we, we now know as the Pax Romana, the era of Roman peace. And he was accorded all of the honor and the qualities of a god. Uh, one of the descriptions, uh, the inscriptions that's been found uh, regarding him says this, divine Augustus Caesar, son of a god, imperator of land and sea, the benefactor and savior of the whole world. And to the outside observer, if you just pick up the story here in Luke chapter 2, you would say to yourself, well, Caesar Augustus is the main character. He is the one who pulls the strings. He's the one who wields the power. He's the one that you want to follow. He is at the very top of the greatest superpower in all of the earth. But there's another story going on here, isn't there? It's a story we're well aware of because we haven't just picked up the story here. There's a story that is much more important than what's going on with Caesar Augustus. And in fact, Luke tells this story in such a way to help us to see that Caesar Augustus is merely the backdrop for what the Lord God Almighty is doing. He lists all of the top brass in the Roman Empire, you have the emperor, you have uh, Quirinius, the governor of Syria, and then you get to verse four, and it says, and Joseph also went up from Galilee along with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. This is the real story. And the baby that Mary is carrying is the real king. 
Now, how do we know that? Well, the angel has told us. The angel Gabriel has already told us so in the previous chapter. In verse 32, he says of this child, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord will give, to, Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. So you have the superiority of Jesus Christ over Caesar Augustus, even while he's a little child. He hasn't even been born yet. Isn't that wonderful? Two kings, one of them is earthly, he's mortal, he's self-serving, he's temporary. And then you have the son of the Most High, one with an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, a kingdom that will never be destroyed. The book of Daniel says. And what's so delightful about all of this and, and, and in keeping just with the wonder of God's ways is that Caesar Augustus is presented all along the way as an unwitting agent in all of this. He is an unwitting agent in the hands of God. He may be the emperor of, of Rome, but he's a pawn when it comes to the Lord God Almighty. And Luke wants us to see that. Luke wants us to see that when Caesar begins to flex his, his imperial muscle and he issues this decree, he does so only at the service of God's good pleasure, only at the service of God's will. So you could say, in a matter of speaking, Caesar, uh, Caesar, Caesar issues a decree, but only at the decree of God. God is at work here. And we know, of course, what Caesar would have never understood in the moment that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills, wherever he wills. Isn't that comforting? Brothers and sisters, that is still true today. What a great comfort that is to the hearts of God's people. When you look out at the world and you see the state of things, you see uh, the, the, the state of affairs that the world is in, you see who sits on thrones and, and the, the superpowers of the earth. Take this to mind. God controls the course of human history. He is working to bring about God's good purposes. The Lord told wicked Pharaoh, but for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Glory to God. Glory to God that his hand, his sometimes hidden hand, but his hand is at work in the world, accomplishing his purposes, bringing his promises to pass. And we can believe on him. We can trust on him for that. That is cause for rejoicing. The Lord's sovereignty over the affairs of men, even evil men, even evil men. So when you find yourself tempted to worry about tomorrow, or when you find yourself tempted to worry about your child's tomorrow, remember, God is on his throne. No purpose of his can be thwarted. He even uses evil dictators to bring them about. Now, 
Look at the humble place of Christ's birth in verse 4. This is the next surprise. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Since Joseph is of the house of David, he dutifully reports to Bethlehem, the city of David, which meant that he and Mary and the child are at the right place at the right time so that Jesus would be born in the place that it was foretold to bring about the fulfillment of God's promises. Now, why Bethlehem? Bethlehem would be the last place that you or I would ever pick for the Son of God to be born in. We have to admit that from the human plane, this seems absolutely foolish. But the Bible says that the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And this was part of God's good plan. Some 800 years earlier, God spoke through the prophet Micah. And he says this, this is Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Now, church, that proves to us that the place of Christ's birth is not some curious detail in the story here. This is integral to what God is doing in the coming of his son. The ancient of days will hail from Bethlehem of all places. And the biblical authors seem to make a want, want to make a point of this as if to say, look at how scrappy, look at how insignificant this town is, look at how lowly and humble it is, look at how unlikely the place of God's choosing really is, too small even to bother being counted in the clans of Judah. Rather than drawing our attention away from where uh, Jesus was born, the word of God actually shines a spotlight on it. The Bible wants us to see the lowliness of Christ's condescension, the, the obscurity, the indignity of it all. Here in Bethlehem is great David's greater son. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? So you have the humble place of Christ's birth, you, you, you also have the actual setting of his arrival in that manger. And, and, and friends, this is more than just surprising. It, it, it's paradoxical. It doesn't add up when it comes to human wisdom. Now, the birth of Christ is, is covered in, in the span of just one verse, and it says that our incarnate Lord, the one who, in, in whom the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, was laid in a place reserved for animals. Look at verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, beloved, just notice that conspicuously absent is any mention of a harsh innkeeper who wouldn't let them in. 
I'm sorry if you played that role in a childhood play, but he's nowhere to be found in the biblical text. Neither is there any indication that they were the last people to hurry into town under the cover of darkness and that all of the no vacancy signs were up. In fact, the Bible tells us that it was while they were, you could say already there, while they were there, that the time came for her to give birth. When the days were fulfilled, she bore the child in a stable because there was no place for them in the inn. The problem is, is that when we hear the word inn, we all have this image of something like a a Motel 6 that that comes to our mind. That is not the, the, the proper meaning of this word. In fact, there, there is a proper, uh, word for a commercial type in that Luke actually uses, uh, later in the book. He uses it in the, the story of the Good Samaritan, where the Samaritan, uh, picks up the man and he takes him to the inn, a commercial establishment, and he, he takes care of him. Here it is a different word. A better translation might be guest room. It's what Jesus uses when he tells his disciples just before he goes to the cross, when he tells them to follow that man carrying a jar of water into the master's house and to ask, where is the guest room that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Same word. So that's the idea here. Probably Joseph and Mary are staying with relatives or friends, and they've all come in because of this this census, and the guest room is already full. The days are fulfilled. Mary is about to give birth. So what do they do? Well, probably they use this sunken area down at one end of the main living quarters in in, in the, the house, the place where animals would be brought into during the night. So Christ was born. He was wrapped in swaddling cloths, and he was laid in what was effectively an animal's trough. And again, the emphasis here is on the the humiliation, the squalor of our Lord's birth, the depths to which he stooped for us. There was no royal palace. There was no fanfare. There was no pomp and circumstance. The radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature was laid in a place reserved for animals. And friends, this is emblematic of his entire life. It is but a foretaste of what his whole life will will hold in his condescension and his substitution on behalf of needy sinners. Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. There were times when he went hungry, he was betrayed, he was abandoned by his friends until at last he was nailed to a cross with a crown of thorns on his brow. But that pattern, that pattern of meekness and lowliness begins here with the very first breath the very first breath that he breathed. There is this baseness, this humiliation that ought to cause us to step back and marvel. We have to ask, why? Why is this the case? Why did Jesus come in the way that he did? 
And Paul puts this in no uncertain terms in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And the incarnation of Jesus Christ is the greatest act of the grace of God mankind has ever known. Why was Jesus born in Bethlehem? Why was the Christ child laid in a manger? Why did he not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men? Why did he take up his reign, being nailed to a cross, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich? There are surprises still to come. If you look at verse 8, shepherds appear, seemingly out of nowhere. Where do they fit in? Why do they belong here? What significance could shepherds have in this story? Well, that seems to be precisely the point. It's their insignificance that catches our attention here. They are lowly. They're insignificant. They're outsiders. They don't fit in, except somehow, in the mercy of God, they do. They find themselves here in the perfect wisdom of our God, a story that we can all find ourselves fitting into in one way or another, if you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the ancient world, shepherds were understood to be unclean, unclean according to the standards of the law. Because of the nature of the work, they could never be considered ceremonially clean. Add to, the, to that the fact that by this time, they were, they were generally considered a class of people that had a, a bad reputation. They were not allowed admission into the court of law. We know that sheep wandered. That's something the Bible uh, uses as an image of sinners uh, repeatedly. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Uh, There's a spiritual principle there, but when you look at the natural uh, physical reality that that principle is based upon, that means that less than reputable shepherds would would, uh, have the opportunity uh, from time to time to steal a few sheep and enrich their own flocks if they saw fit. That is not to say that these particular shepherds were dishonorable. In fact, I would argue that they were not, and that's part of why they were given the privilege uh, that they were given. But that was their reputation as a class, nevertheless. But the point here, church, is that the good news of Jesus Christ comes not to the privileged. It doesn't come to those with means or to people in high places, but to the the least likely of candidates, the ones that you would never expect. In his mercy, God chooses the foolish, the weak, the lowly, the despised. Church, we have a a savior who, who eats and drinks with sinners. Later, Peter will say, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, 
But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. In James's epistle, it's almost like he, he grabs us by the shoulders and he says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? When Christ began his public ministry in the world, John the Baptist sent disciples to ask whether Jesus was the one or whether they should go looking for another. And Jesus told them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And you can see the tendency of God's ways right here in a field outside of Bethlehem with shepherds. From the very day of Christ's birth, you have a window into the kind of ministry that he will bring, the sort of people that he condescends to touch. You have this small-scale uh, depiction of the Lord's, uh, or, or, or those words that Mary sang in her song, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. We too are a picture of that. We too are a picture of the grace of God. Let us never forget who we are, where Christ has brought us from, our abject neediness. You see in the text that the the shepherds are understandably beset with fear. They are they have the, the sight of the, the glory of God shining around them in the midst of darkness while they're, they're keeping watch over their flocks by night. They must have been just absolutely terror-stricken. You, just, you can only imagine what that must have been like. But you see this transformation, and the Bible describes them as going from great fear to great joy. Now, young people, if you have your Bible open, look at the the passage with me. What brings that transformation about? What what intersects great fear and great joy? What has the power to bring great joy to the hearts of men? Do you see it? It's good news. It's the good news of, of Jesus Christ. Now, what does that good news consist of? Verse 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. A Savior has come, someone who comes to deliver, someone who comes to rescue us from peril. Now, church, it's at this point that we must begin to ask ourselves, a Savior from what? A savior from what? What do I need saving from? We have to reckon with the implications of these words. It assumes a need on our part, does it not? Do you know the answer to that? Matthew spells it out for us. It says, of Mary, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people 
from their sins. From their sins. Do you believe that you are in need, desperately in need of a savior? That the greatest need you have in life today is to be rescued, delivered from the sin that has brought death and destruction and guilt into your life? Have you come to believe that you are in a kind of spiritual predicament that is so hopeless, that is so dire, that your destiny is one of eternal destruction? And if Christ does not come, if Christ does not come and lift you out of that pit, you have no hope. You are destined for the fearful expectation of judgment and the fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Not everyone wants to hear this. I've told you before about Selena Hastings, uh, the Countess of Huntington. In the mid-1700s, there was an upper-class woman named Lady Huntington, She was well-to-do. She sought to use the resources that the Lord had given her uh, for his glory. This was in the middle of the time when there was the Holiness Club in New England, and you had men like George Whitfield and and John John Wesley who were seeking the face of God and who who were trying to discern how they could use every waking moment for his glory. Well, Lady Huntington would, would from time to time uh, invite one of these men into her home and invite some of her friends to hear these leading uh, preachers of the day. Well, after one of these events, one of her friends got upset. She didn't like what she had been told. She wrote Lady Huntington a note. This is what she said, talking about George Whitfield. She said, I found the Methodist doctrine most repulsive and strongly tinctured with impertinence and disrespect to their superiors. It is monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl on the earth. This is highly offensive insult and insulting, much at variance with high rank and good breeding. It's monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl on the earth. Well, it is a monstrous truth. It is a monstrous reality that we are faced with, but it is true. This is the truth. To have Jesus as your savior is to confess that you have this need, a need that only he can satisfy, a guilt that only he can atone for, a burden that only he is able to remove. That's why the Bible says that he is Christ, the Lord, because no other ordinary man could ever suffice for you or for I. No other man could stand in our place. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We need the God-man to come and stand in our place. Our Savior is Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the fulfillment of God's promise to bring salvation into the world. He is the Lord, the one by whom and for whom all things were made. 
Now, church, the, 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 the passage here outlines four responses to the incarnation and birth of Jesus Christ. Lord of Lords and human vesture. And I want to walk through each of them with you because they, they each have something to say to us. They are, they are each instructive in their own kind of way. Now, first you have the angelic response in verse 13. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. An army of angels, that's the idea of heavenly host, an army appears and they they come to tell of two great effects of Christ's coming, two great consequences of this wonderful work of God. And they go in two different directions. First, they ascribe glory to God in the place that he dwells, in the highest. Glory to God in the highest. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. All the hosts of heaven, those who are unstained by sin, uh, creatures who live to do God's will, what is their first response when the Lord uh, fulfills his promise to his people? Remember, they don't share the the need that we do. They give him glory. The incarnation of Jesus Christ is first and foremost about the glory of God. Glory revealed on the earth calls for glory to be given on the part of his creation. The humility of Christ's birth, born in a feeding trough, born in the town of Bethlehem. This is not meant to be met with ooze, and awes, but worship, rejoicing. We should not read this story and find ourselves feeling those warm fuzzies, but gospel joy. Now you see in the second half of their response, it goes in the other direction. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Again, in in, in the book of Micah, in chapter five and verse four, Micah prophesies about the Messiah, and he says this, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. For centuries, God had been promising to send a savior to the world who would bring peace. Isaiah says, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end. Jesus' birth is the answer to that promise. When we talk about peace, we're not just talking about the absence of strife. We're not just saying, well, we're not at war, we're talking about real, true peace with God. We're talking about being brought into relationship with the everlasting Father. We are describing a peace that only comes by way of the blood of the cross. Peace that comes as a result of being justified by faith through our Lord Jesus Christ. A peace that passes 
understanding, a peace that rights all wrongs, that brings the restoration of everything that has been broken to the world. So profoundly tied is the, is the peace that this text is describing to the person and work of Christ that Paul is able to say, he himself is our peace. He is our peace. If we were in December, I would not have to remind you that our culture tries to hard sell us this vision of happiness and peace and and joy and all of this cheer. And Christians are not immune from that. Believers are not immune from trying to look to other things to find the peace and the fulfillment and the joy that only Jesus Christ can bring to the heart of man. So let the scriptures strip away all of our sappy sentimentalism when it comes to a passage like this. Let us be left with the ugly reality that our sins have been, have separated us from God. This is the, the truth that gets to the very core of the absence of peace in our lives. But friends, let us also see Christ for who he is. Let us see him in the fullness of his person and work that he has come to bring peace, not as the world gives, but true peace among those with whom he is pleased. With whom is he pleased? Paul tells us that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You cannot earn God's favor. It is only when we receive the good news of Jesus Christ, it is only when we turn from our wretchedness, when we turn from our sin, when we put our faith in the hope of Jesus Christ and the salvation that is found in him, that we can know the good pleasure of our God. We must come to him with the empty hands of faith, simply trusting, simply simply believing. You must receive salvation as the gift that it is. In verse 15, there's the shepherd's response. Immediately their faith, you see, is put into to action. They went, went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in, in the manger. Those words with haste remind us of, of Mary with, moving with haste to see her, her cousin or her relative Elizabeth. The Lord makes himself known and the shepherds drop what they're doing. They spring into action. The trajectory of their lives change. What do they do? As soon as they see the child, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. These anonymous shepherds, their their names are never mentioned. Somehow that's wonderful uh, in this passage. They don't get the glory, God does. But these, these shepherds whose, whose names are never mentioned, they are, they're sometimes described as the, the first evangelist. Just hours have passed and already they are going out into all the world proclaiming the gospel to the whole creation. They've only barely heard the good news, but they're sharing. And they're, they're sharing what God has come to do in Christ anticipates the response of others, doesn't it? 
You find that in verse 18, the response of the people. This is response number three. All who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. They wondered. Now that does not tell us that they believed. It doesn't tell us that they trusted. It simply indicates that they marveled, they mused in some way at what they had heard. And I draw your attention to that because there seems to be an intentional contrast here on Luke's part between all who heard it and that wonder that they experience in verse 18 and that fourth and final response that you see in the text, that distinctive spirit of receptivity and delight that we see in Mary in verse 19. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. The the words and the work of God were like a treasure to her, something that she understood to be of great value, something she delighted in, something that she determined to, to store up within her heart and to take time to ponder over. over. You, can, you can imagine her glorifying God and praising him for, for the things that she understood and at the same time wrestling to put all the pieces together of what he was doing. Earlier, Mary had asked, you remember, uh, after the angel had prophesied the, the Messiah's birth, how will this be since I am a virgin? And Gabriel says, well, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. He will overshadow you. And we can look at verse 19 and see that that uh, did not mean comprehensive understanding of everything that God was doing in the moment. It is not the case that you're always able to discern everything that God is doing in the moment. I don't think that's ever the case, brothers and sisters. But it is true that it, as we discipline ourselves, as we treasure up his word in our hearts, that we come to love him more, that we come to set our faith on him more wholeheartedly, that we come to experience this peace that he came to bring. So where does that leave us today? There is an important little phrase back in verse 10 where it says that this good news of great joy isn't just for shepherds, but for all the people. Which means that when we read, for unto you is born this day a Savior who is Christ the Lord, that word, you, extends forth across every generation and people And it meets us here today on August the 7th, 2022, the year of the Lord. And it calls for a response on our part as well. Let's go to the Lord. Our Father, we give you praise. We thank you, Lord, that when the fullness of time had come, You sent forth your Son, 
born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. God, I thank you that through his life and his death and his resurrection, we have received entry into your kingdom and not just entry, but adoption as sons. God, we bless your name. We thank you that you have looked upon our helpless estate, that you have shown us mercy. Lord, that great sinners have a great, great, great Savior who is Christ the Lord. And our souls magnify him. Our spirits rejoice in God, our Savior. He who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. God, we pray that you would grant us the grace like Mary, to treasure up all of these things, to ponder them in our hearts. Help us, God, to flee to Christ with all of our sin, all of our burdens, all of our worries and our cares, to find him to be our all-sufficient one, the fountain of true delight, our, our all and all. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.